the first night in an afternoon place. And I'm sure as the days pass, this place will begin to feel more and more like some kind of home. What I want to do over the next seven or eight days is try to answer this particular question. What did the Buddha actually say that was distinctively his own view? In other words, to try to understand, primarily through a study and a reflection upon certain key passages from the, the suttas, in other words, the, the discourses attributed to the Buddha in the Pali Canon. The Pali Canon, remember, is that body of texts preserved in the ancient Indian language of Pali, which is a vernacular form of Sanskrit. And this particular body of texts is regarded as canonical. In other words, the the primary source of Buddha's teaching that prevails in the countries of Sri Lanka and Southeast Asia. We're going to be looking at a number of these texts and we'll be giving them a fairly close reading. Depending on how our discussions in the afternoon develop, where I see where your interests lie, and what are live questions for you. We'll proceed through these texts um, either more quickly or more slowly. But the point, very much, is to try to create um, an atmosphere of inquiry and understanding that will enable each of us, however familiar or unfamiliar we are with some of these ideas, to get some first-hand experiential sense of what the Buddha was trying to say to human beings. So what did the Buddha actually say that was distinctively his own view? I find it slightly ironic that there are probably perhaps even a majority of people in the world who call themselves Buddhist, who may not, in fact, have read a single uh, sutta that can be reliably traced back to the Buddha himself. When I trained as a monk, <coughs> both in the Tibetan Geluk school and in the Korean uh, Chogye order, I don't think we ever studied a text that would be found in the Pali Canon. That's not to say that many of the key ideas were unfamiliar to us. Doctrines like that of the Four Truths, Dependent Origination and so on are of course uh, widely discussed in these traditions, but usually from a much later source 
in the course of my own study and practice of the Dharma, which goes back now some 35 years, I've slowly returned more and more uh, to the primary sources of the Buddhist tradition. From the viewpoint of my Tibetan teachers, I've effectively regressed <laughs> from the highest teachings to the most uh, primitive. <laughs> Starting with the Bhagavad and then effectively going backwards. And in that sense, I'm sort of a Buddhist failure. <laughs> so what did the Buddha actually say that was distinctively his own view? There are two things, therefore, that we need to separate off or put into brackets that obscure for us the um, ideas that are distinctively his. The first thing we have to do is to differentiate the Buddha's Dhamma from the pre-existing religious culture of his time. Now what was that? Well, to some extent, we don't really know. There may, be, have all, there may have been all manner of ideas and doctrines that were current in that period, of which all trace has been lost. We can only rely, obviously, on those traditions that still survive today, that we can fairly reliably say existed prior to the Buddha. And this is the tradition of the Vedas, and the Upanishads. The Vedas are not really quite so important here. They are the early hymns, and mainly hymns, that were voiced by the Aryan uh, civilization as it began to achieve a degree of, of settlement and autonomy within the Gangetic Basin probably about 1,500 or so years before the Buddha, when people started asking the great questions of human life. Where do we come from? Where did it all go? Who made this world? What is the purpose of human life? The Vedas are very, very many of them in number. And some of them are extraordinarily beautiful and moving. I might, in fact, if we have time, uh, read some passages from the Rig Veda, where you have the sense of human beings coming to consciousness, coming to an awareness of the fact of their being in this world, and not knowing at all why they are here, or what their life is for. The Vedas record the first deep yearnings of the human spirit to give some kind of articulation to these questions. Over the next thousand or so years, this inquiry becomes much more um, specific and focused 
into a particular worldview and discourse. And this, loosely speaking, is found in what are called the Upanishads. The Upanishads are sometimes known as the Vedanta, which means the, the end of the Vedas. And they mark a very distinctive shift away from the centrality of ritual in the Vedas. In many ways, these gave rise to forms of uh, sacrificial practice that was the preserve of the Brahmins, the priestly caste, whose role in society was to maintain uh, harmony between heaven and earth, or between the gods and human beings. In the Upanishads, the centrality of that kind of ritual behavior is replaced by um, an increasing conviction that only through knowledge uh, and understanding that is arrived at through one's own inquiry can a human being gain liberation and freedom. And very much this has to do with recognizing uh, the identity of our deepest innermost self with that of God or Brahman. Also in the Upanishads, we find um, the first uh, expressions of the doctrines of karma, in other words, those, the force of action that drives one from one birth to the next, and therefore also the doctrine of reincarnation or rebirth, which describes the uh, circular coursing from life to life through different realms of existence, driven by one's actions. So, anything, therefore, that we find within the Buddha's teaching that is, in, 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 in fact, merely the statement or the repetition of ideas that already existed at his time, so rebirth, karma, God, um, self, self in the metaphysical sense. These are ideas that we can bracket because they're not things, they're, they're not ideas that are distinctively those of the Buddha. They already were there. He adopted some of them, he critiqued others, he has a rather complicated relationship with the religious culture of his time. <coughs> I'm going to come back to this um, either tomorrow or the next day and actually look at some passages in the Upanishads to give us a clearer and more authoritative sense of the kind of view that we find in them. The second thing we have to do to answer my question is to differentiate the Buddha's Dhamma from certain elements of later Buddhist tradition that seem to revert back to the view of the Upanishads. 
As Buddhist tradition developed, it developed in manifold ways, as one might expect. And there arose uh, several schools of philosophy or doctrine. We don't have time uh, to go into all of these. But with each um, generation, as the centuries passed, the Buddhist community found itself often in a situation where it had to give answers to questions that became important points of philosophical and religious debate at different periods in history, and as such had to look within its own sources. The monks uh, and the other people practicing the Dharma needed to look deep within their own experience to be able to engage uh, in a creative and meaningful way with the challenges of Indian culture at those periods. It's enormously difficult uh, to be able to say uh, which of those schools remained true to the early tradition and which departed from it. Again, it's rather complicated and mixed up. But unless we do this kind of um, inquiry, those later doctrines of Buddhism can likewise um, obscure what it was the Buddha actually said. Towards the end of the week, I'll be giving some examples from some of those later schools that seem quite clearly to have um, diverged considerably from the early tradition and have adopted a view much closer to that of the Vedanta. So that's the broad frame of reference um, that we'll be exploring this week. I'd like to start now by highlighting three elements within the Buddhist teaching that to me seem to be uh, the most distinctive and uh, give us a kind of foundation on which to be able to answer this question in more detail. And these are three points that I'll be returning to again and again. <coughs> so what did the Buddha actually say that was distinctively his own view? I think we can boil this down to three primary points. One is the doctrine or the teaching of conditionality. Paticca Samupada. We're going to look at this later um, in this uh, talk this morning. The idea that um, at the very heart of this insight lay this vision of a profoundly contingent phenomenal world that was governed by uh, the law of causation, of course, its causes giving rise to effects. And for the Buddha, that constituted the totality of anything we can meaningfully talk about. The conditioned world, the sensory world, the world that is open to our experience through what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, feel, think, 
are conscious of intuitively within ourselves. The world that appears, phenomenal, which is a term I've been using quite a lot, comes from the Greek word which means to appear, the apparent world. Although in, um, quite shortly after the Buddha it would appear, there emerged a way of thinking that is characteristic of all Buddhist schools, not just the Mahayana, but in the Theravada and the Mahayana, in which the world is split into two. There is the apparent world that we see and talk about and think about, yet there is also a truer reality, which is called the Paramatasatya, the ultimate truth or the absolute truth, what is really real as opposed to merely apparent. This is the doctrine of the two truths, absolute truth as opposed to relative truth, reality as opposed to appearance, essence as opposed to accident. But this way of thinking is entirely alien to the early Pali Canon. The Buddha never uses these terms. He never speaks with uh, that kind of distinction uppermost in his mind. It's also, for us in the West, our legacy of Platonic thought. Plato famously divided the world into um, the essential ideas or the essences, what is truly real, and appearances. And this has um, become such a deeply seated assumption in Western culture that we find it quite difficult to step outside that view of things. That behind appearances there is something more real. That there is my true, eternal, lasting self, and then all of the various different aspects that I might assume, the teacher, the husband, the father, the brother, whatever. And yet, there is something that has those attributes that seems to be somehow lasting, possibly eternal. I feel that the Buddha uh, taught prior to those distinctions being made. So conditionality is the principle on which the Buddha's Dharma is uh, built. The second point is the teaching of the middle way. The middle way the Buddha uh, describes uh, consistently um, as the Eightfold Path. In other words, a way of life that incorporates all aspects of our humanity, from the way we, we see the world, from the way we think about it, and in a way, what we'll be doing in these sessions is the practice of samasankhapa, usually translated as right thought. Thinking is not seen as a problem that we have to get rid of and suspend, but rather an integral part of the path itself. 
So seeing, thinking, speaking, acting, earning our livelihood, committing ourselves, dedicating ourselves, making right effort, as it's usually translated, practicing mindfulness, practicing concentration. These are the elements of the path. This is the, the template within which the Buddha's Dharma is practiced. It's worth bearing in mind that uh, the Eightfold Path was the very first idea that the Buddha introduced in his first discourse, which we will look at in detail over the coming days. And it also occurs right at the very end of his life, in his final teaching to his last disciple, a man called Subhadra, who is received by the Buddha as the Buddha lies dying in Kushinagar. <coughs> and when asked what it is that constitutes his teaching, the Buddha very explicitly states, wherever one finds the teaching of the Eightfold Path, there you find my Dhamma. I've summarized that. But it's found in the Paramedana Sutta, right before he actually died. So there's a consistency in his teaching of the centrality of the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is sometimes presented as a kind of a, uh, Buddhism for beginners, something you have to sort of do to be a good, paid-up, card-carrying member of the church. But in fact, I would argue, it is what the whole teaching is about. The Buddha's concerned more with the process of living, the way of life, rather than achieving a kind of mystical or transcendent experience. And the third um, distinctive element of the Buddha's uh, teaching is that of the practice of mindful awareness, of mindfulness, which again we'll be talking about continuously <coughs> through this week. So we might find it helpful to just bear these three points in mind which we can think of as principle, process, and practice. The principle is that of conditionality, dependent origination. The process is that of creating or entering and creating the Eightfold Path. And the practice is that of cultivating grounding ourselves in mindful awareness. Now none of those three elements, none of those three doctrines will be found in your Upanishads. And so I think we can safely say that here we have arrived at least as a, as a starting point to an answer to this question what did the Buddha actually teach that was distinctively his own view. Conditionality, 
the Eightfold Path and Mindfulness. <coughs> now all of those points we're going to explore through this week and we'll diverge very little from those uh, central ideas. Now today, I'm going to start um, with the idea of conditionality and the text that I've given to you. You, you do all have a copy? No one understands on this? Uh, the text that I'm uh, going to look at is this one, which comes from a sutra, a discourse called the Arya Pariyasana Sutra. <laughs> This is the 26th uh, middle-length discourse in the Marginal Quest. And it means the discourse on the noble quest. It's an unusual text because we actually hear the Buddha talking about his own story. In other words, how he left home <coughs> how he practiced different forms of concentrative absorption under two teachers, how he embarked on uh, a period of asceticism, and how, having become disillusioned with these particular practices, he decides to just sit and confront the questions that drove him to leave home in the first place. The questions, in other words, of his existence. The big questions. Those of you who are interested, you can find several translations of this uh, whole sutta. I'm not going to um, go through it um, page by page, but just to focus on one passage in which the Buddha describes the experience of awakening. One feature of this text, which is implicit in the name of the teaching itself, the idea of a noble quest <coughs> or search, is that we're talking here of a process uh, from a going forth from home to homelessness, which is the formal description of um, renunciation, up until the moment of his awakening, and then from the awakening, the engaging with the next phase of his process, in other words, now what do I do? What next? And the text leaves us with the Buddha leaving Bodhgaya and going off to teach. Let me read you first uh, the translation with which you might be more familiar. I've translated this passage uh, myself from the Pali, and I suspect you've probably read it, or at least glanced over it. But put that aside for the time being. Now, this is the translation of Bhikkhu Bodhi and Bhikkhu Nyanamori of the same passage as found in the Wisdom Publications uh, edition of the text. 
This is what the Buddha said. I consider this Dhamma that I have attained is profound, hard to see and hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle to be experienced by the wise. But this generation delights in worldliness, takes delight in worldliness, rejoices in worldliness. It is hard for such a generation to see this truth, namely specific conditionality, <coughs> dependent origination. And it is hard to see this truth, namely the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of all attachments, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. If I were to teach the Dharma, others would not understand it, and that would be wearying and troublesome for me. This has always been, for me, a very important, if not key, passage in answering the question, what is awakening? What is this enlightenment? <coughs> Here, the Buddha describes the experience succinctly um, and yet without missing the complexity of the experience itself. So let's try to unpack that. But first of all, let me read the translation that I've come up with. <coughs> I consider it. This Dhamma I have reached is deep, hard to see, difficult to awaken to, quiet and consequent, not confined by thought, subtle, sensed by the wise. <coughs> but people love their place. They delight and revel in their place. It is hard for people who love, delight and revel in their place to see this ground. This conditions that. Conditioned arising. And also hard to see this ground. The stilling of all formation. The relinquishing of all bases. The fading away of craving. Desirelessness. Stopping. Nibbana. <coughs> were I to teach the Dhamma and others were not to understand it, that would be tiring and vexing for me. Now, you'll probably notice that these two translations are not identical. But let's now look at where they differ. I think the main difference is that in the first translation, um, we lose the... Um, uh, the beat, one might say, the pulse of the guiding metaphor of a quest or a journey. Uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi says, this Dharma that I have attained, which again suggests uh, a spiritual attainment, the acquisition of something that one did not have before. The Pali says, um, adigato, which means to arrive somewhere, to reach something. 
which is very much consistent with the metaphor of a journey. The Buddha doesn't say that he's attained this Dhamma, although that's one interpretation, but rather that he has arrived somewhere. He's found himself at a kind of destination. And this place that he's arrived at, he describes as hard to see, difficult to awaken to, he has hard to understand that the word um, in Pali is a cognate of the word body, awakening. The centrality of this notion of awakening and this metaphor of waking up um, is not, I think, just a term the Buddha picked out of a hat. I feel it is a very crucial guiding metaphor. The term enlightenment which is also very common in the West, is premised on another metaphor, uh, that of um, shedding light on something. <coughs> the Buddha does use that expression. But the central idea of Bodhi is, has to do with waking up. In other words, it's a metaphor. The experience that he had here, he compared to that of what we experience every morning when we wake up from either a deep sleep or from a dream. And the crucial difference between being awake and being asleep is that when we're awake, we're no longer locked or absorbed into our own private and subjective experience. When we're dreaming, what we are dreaming of is saying more about us than what is actually happening in the external world. I might dream of my mother and have all sorts of interactions with my mother, but my mother is sound asleep in her bed in the middle of England. When I wake up, then my relationship with my mother concerns this very elderly lady. <coughs> in this residential care home in Shropshire. Whatever my dream might have said about her, however she might have appeared in that dream, was a representation of my own memories, unconscious experiences, my childhood or whatever, that had nothing much to do with her. Waking up is to find oneself in uh, a world of others, other people, other forms of life, uh, an environment, a social world, a biological world, over which I do not have much control, that impinges on my existence in every moment in unpredictable ways. In other words, it is the world of response, the world of interaction with others. That is what it is to be awake, as opposed to asleep. And the Buddha picks that metaphor, I feel, because he sees his awakening as one in which he has awoken to the complexity of the phenomenal world, with all the different beings that impinge on his existence with their conflicting desires and fears and so forth. 
this awakening also is not confined by thought. It's not something that is simply the result of uh, rational inquiry or philosophical investigation, but something that has awoken within him at a much deeper level of his being. It's something that is subtle, and then he says, sensed by the wise. The word in Pali is Vedanayo, um, which is the same word as Vedana, the second aggregate. It means to feel, to sense. Bhikkhu Bodhi has experienced, which I feel is slightly abstract perhaps, and it misses the connection with uh, this very important idea in Buddhism, that of feeling, or sensing, that which is given to us prior to our conceptual formulation of it. It also points in this passage to what he's awoken to is not something utterly exclusive to him, but wise people in different cultures at different times perhaps have likewise come to sense this Dhamma. Now it's in the next passage that um, this translation and my translation part company rather uh, drastically. But people love their place. They delight and revel in their place. The word for place is alaya. Now alaya is a word that you might have come on across in other Buddhist settings. In the, uh, in the Chittamatra philosophy, which is a much later school of thought than the Buddha, we find the idea of the alaya visnyana, the foundation consciousness. But perhaps unaware of it, with all of us, use this word alaya in ordinary English each time we speak about India and talk about the Himalayas. It is the Himma alaya. Himma means snow, alaya means place or foundation or base for snow. Himalaya. But it's the same word alaya. In the compound here, it is alayarama, which means love or delight in one's alaya. Now, Bhikkhu says that this generation delights in worldliness. That um, gives no real sense of this key term, alaya. Worldliness to me means someone who lives a very superficial life, who is obsessed with the, coming, the, 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 the comings and the goings and the doings and the misdeeds of celebrities. Yeah. <laughs> a worldly person is one who reads People magazine. <laughs> Worldliness to me again suggests uh, um, it's not incorrect, obviously, but it picks up on one aspect of this idea of delighting and reveling in one's place. But it, this is the idea of place. Now place, again, is a metaphor that is consistent with that of a quest or a journey. Worldliness isn't. 
So in this sense, the translation departs from the guiding metaphor that runs through this text. So what does it mean, therefore, to delight and revel in one's place? In fact, what do we mean, in fact, by place? One's place is that to which one is most strongly bound. It's the foundation on which the entire edifice of one's identity is built. It's formed, for example, through identification with a, with a physical location. <coughs> Today, um, in a couple of hours, there will begin a rugby match in which England are playing South Africa in the World Cup final. <laughs> now, I'm not remotely interested in rugby football, but because my country is in the final of this event, I've suddenly become rather um, uh, interested in the outcome of this game. And I want England to win. <laughs> but what's going on here? This is a good example, although in some senses a rather trivial one, about my attachment to place. It's so deeply rooted in us that it's often only at times like these when some um, some credit or advantage to my nation is achieved, that I suddenly feel the stirrings within me of this, um, of, of this attachment, of this identification. The problem doesn't lie, of course, in the actual physical country of England. It lies in my uh, identifying with it at an almost visceral level. Again, I guess most of you are Americans, and I suspect you too can feel um, strong emotions around the representation and the achievements of America, and you feel good about that. And likewise, when America does something, or its government does something that you deplore, you also feel a counter-emotion of shame, or whatever it might be. But this, I think, is because we are, at some level, some deep level within ourselves, identified with this place. I am an American. But if we track this notion of place, we find that it operates at numerous different strata in our lives. My place in society, this is also something that secures my role, my identity within the world in which I live, here not geographically, but socially. We're all somehow um, identified with the role we play. We all have some sense of our levels of accomplishment and uh, achievement in which we take pride and in which also we feel a location. 
whether it be I am a meditation teacher, I am an author of books, um, I've been called this and called that, I've been praised, I've been blamed. All of these things concern my identification also with place, my attachment to place, within the social realm in which I move. If we go more internally, we find that our place, our foundation, is not reducible just to one's national identity, one's social position, but it starts to get much more intimate in terms of my most deeply cherished beliefs. If I'm a religious person, let's say a Buddhist, then my identity is more crucially that of one who considers himself a member or a follower of this particular doctrine and teaching. Um, I consider myself a Buddhist, um, and this for me has been a very important part of my identity in the world, both socially, but perhaps more crucially, in terms of where I feel I am located um, within the wider set of values, meaning what really matters to me, in terms of the ideas that I feel are, are central to making sense of my life, and I will take a stand on that. This whole process that we're engaged in this week, or at least that I'm engaged in, is trying to uh, fine-tune what actually it means to be a Buddhist. And I will take issue with people who disagree. <laughs> and people who disagree with me will likewise take exception to what I say. And that is how philosophical and theological disputes and debates and arguments have animated all spiritual and religious communities ever since their founding. It's the, it's the tension, it's the dynamism that drives people's uh, search for some kind of religious and spiritual identity. If we step one further back, one step further back still, we find perhaps that the core of my sense of place is my sense of being a self-sufficient ego. And here, of course, the Buddha has a great deal to say to us. That my place, when I can take away my country, I can take away my social position, I can take away my religious beliefs, but behind all of that will lurk this insistent conviction that I am me. And the world somehow turns around me. I'm the one I think about most of the time. That this story of who I am underlies, it feels, everything I may believe in or identify with, at the very core of it, is a kind of um, grasping, a kind of a seizure, a sort of a spasm that is locked around the conviction of being me. And this is what the human animal does. It selfs. It crystallizes um, at its very core around this notion of me. 
And it feels, ever since we can remember being made, in other words, from our first memory as a young child, it feels as though that uh, self, that me, doesn't change. It's fixed. It's the one constant. Now, one of the, or perhaps the primary reason we are so uh, attached to and we delight and revel in our place is because all of these things, national identity, social identity, religious identity, they give us a sense that we have some safety, some security in the midst of a world that is anything but safe and secure. The world, as we are fully aware, is not under our control. It's, in, it's thoroughly impermanent and shifting and changing. And we all know, deep down as well as consciously, that one day we will die. That we're here for a very brief period of time. Our existence is utterly temporary. This comes across to us perhaps most vividly, either when we ourselves have a close shave with death, be it in a car accident or be it through a serious disease, or if someone close to us is suddenly not there anymore. Um, a friend of Martin and I uh, died recently. A young guy, about 40 years old, uh, took a drug overdose, and the next thing, he was dead. Completely unexpected. Uh, it wasn't a deliberate suicide or anything. It was an accident. And yet this sudden absence of someone of such vitality um, leaves a rather uh, deep ache and sense of loss within us. And it awakens us once more to the fragility and the impermanence of our own existence. And it's no accident that the Buddha likewise is constantly going on about the impermanence of things. This is not some philosophical idea, but it is a crucial element of what it means to be human. But in this passage at least, what the Buddha sees as uh, problematic at a deep sense about delighting and reveling in one's place is that it makes it very hard to see this ground. In other words, our uh, attachment to place um, is also a kind of uh, obscuration, an anesthetic, something that um, disables us, that closes us off from experiencing and living our lives from what he calls this ground. Now, here we see, and the word he uses for ground is tongue, 
It's not the same as tanha, which means crate. Tan means ground. Or foundation. In fact, alaya and tana mean more or less the same thing. And this is characteristic of um, the Buddha's um, uh, discourse, his way of speaking. He's very playful with language. He'll often use uh, the same term to describe two utterly opposed things. For example, he speaks, as we'll see later in this text, that his teaching goes against the stream. Stream is sota. And then in other passages, he'll talk of the key moment in his path is that of entering the stream, sota. He'll talk about being entangled in views, ditti, and then he'll talk of, of, of right view, ditti. There's a, there's a kind of uh, awareness, it seems, that the Buddha has of the ambiguity and the trickster nature of language itself. So he talks here of being attached to an alaya that prevents you from experiencing your tana, which I've translated respectively as place and ground. For some reason that I don't understand, uh, Bhikkhubodhi and Yanamoditera translates um, tana as truth. And it is hard for such a generation to see this truth. I'd always assumed that truth here would have been such a, which is a well-known Pali term, like in the four truth. And I was rather surprised to find that the Pali doesn't say Sasha at all, but it says Tana, ground, which once again is true to the guiding metaphor of the text, namely that of a journey, a quest. Whereas truth is a very abstract idea, Tana, or ground, is a very um, uh, tactile, concrete image and metaphor. I was talking about this with um, Tanisara Bhikkhu the other day, and he also pointed out that Tana is a musical term, and it means the tonic note, <coughs> um, or the, the sort of the, 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 the key tone. Um, I'm, I'm not a musician, so I'm only vaguely aware of what the tonic note, note is, but a symphony will be written, for example, in C minor. That, that, that is the tonic to which each passage somehow has to return and resolve itself. So there's a possibility that what he's talking about also is the kind of is the key note, the key tone. But what is also curious is that when the Buddha then describes what this ground is, it doesn't sound like a ground at all. He describes this ground as itta pachayata paticca samuppada. Itta pachayata, itta means this, 
and pachayata means condition, paticha means condition, upada arising. Remember in Pali, all of these uh, passages are just locked, just a continuous string of syllables. No punctuation, commas, full stops, colons that we have here. It's slightly arbitrary where we break these words up. But itta patriyata paticca samupada, which I translated as this conditions that, conditioned arising. That is the ground. <clears throat> but of course it is a groundless ground the flux of phenomenal events arising and vanishing continuously, endlessly doesn't feel like a graph it's not at all stable there's nothing standing still on which we can firmly plant our feet this is a ground that is constantly vanishing and reappearing and vanishing and reappearing and vanishing. And yet he calls that the ground. This, of course, is the very opposite of this alaya, this place, that we cling on to for dear life, that we seek to secure and tighten ourselves around, something that can give us the semblance of security and safety in this shifting world, which we identify with. And whatever benefits that might grant us, one thing it also does is cut us off from the actual ground of our life. <clears throat> the ground of our life is groundless. It's shifting. It's moving. It's unreliable. It's like a river into which, as Heraclitus says, one cannot step twice. If you try to grasp this ground, it just slips away between your fingers like water. I think water, again, is an image the Buddha uses quite a lot, is a very uh, appropriate metaphor for the ground of which he is speaking. Perhaps another point I should make, but I have to stop, is the words Tana in Sanskrit, Adishtam, in the Upanishads refers to God, the ground. Here, the ground becomes the shifting flux of life itself. So I'll leave you hanging today. <laughs> and tomorrow, um, we will continue with this passage and explore further what the Buddha seemed to be saying. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.